are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. The text is in Psalm 45, verse 8, one verse. All of thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces, out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made my Savior go. There have been many wonderful journeys made in the ages past. Many of them have been of vast and profound importance. That was a wonderful journey that Abraham made when he left Ur of the Chaldees, and later the city of Haran went down into Canaan to dwell in tabernacles and tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That was a wonderful journey that Moses made when he led more than two million slaves through the divided waters of the great Suez into the Sinai Peninsula. And as they wandered forty years in the wilderness, fed with manna sent down from heaven. A wonderful journey their children made when under the leadership of Joshua they walked dry shod across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Down through all the centuries, men have hurried and moved from place to place. Moving, 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 going, going, going. All the world is on the go. But the most momentous journey ever made was more than 1,942 years ago. Heaven's most illustrious citizen was about to absent himself. He was not going to sail from beach to beach or from one hemisphere to another hemisphere or from this earth out to its satellite. He was to sail from world to world. The space is unexplored, and the amethyst is untraveled. I think the windows and balconies of heaven were thronged with angelic legions who had come to see him sail out of the harbor of light and into the ocean beyond. Out and out and out, and on and on and on, and down and down and down he sailed. Until one night he came to a little town, the land of Judea. His arrival was so quiet and so unpretentious, it was not known on the earth until it was announced to the poor shepherds who kept watch over their flock that night. Who comes there? From what port did he sail? Question the shepherds. Ask the angels. His name is Jesus. He's a royal traveler. One for whom the world has waited more than 4,000 years. And now he comes in such humility that he's born in a manger and announced to poor shepherds keeping watch over their flock in the hilly environs of the little town of Bethlehem. He's a king, born a king. Others become king after they're born. But the wise men came from afar asking, who is, where, where is he that is born? King of the Jews. There's no doubt about his identity. Threading the history of the Jews is the line of his genealogy beginning with Seth, whom Eve claimed to be the father of the promised seed, and traced link by link by the inspired penman, all other genealogies being dropped, down to Noah, Abraham, David, 
to the blessed virgin of Bethlehem. From Adam it took the line of Seth's descendants. From Noah the line of Shem. From Abraham the line of Isaac. From Isaac the line of Jacob. And from Jacob it went glimmering like a thread of gold down the successive generations of Judah. Unbroken it passed over the flood, over Babel, over the wrecks of antiquity, from Eve to Mary, from the guarded beauties of Eden to the manger in the city of David. Again, I say there's no doubt about his identity. When we open the New Testament, the first verse we find is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Schofield notes that this verse connects Jesus with two great covenants of the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant, in which God said to Abraham, I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And the Davidic covenant, in which God promised David, I will give unto thee a house and a throne and a kingdom forever. He is presented here in Matthew as the king of the Jews. Matthew also recognizes and teaches his deity and his servanthood and his humanity, but he puts the emphasis upon his kingship. Mark does not give a genealogy because he presents Christ primarily as a servant. He recognizes that he is the son of man in the federal sense, and that he is the king and the son of God. But he emphasizes the fact that he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Luke, who presents Christ as the son of man, puts the emphasis there, though he also recognizes the deity of Christ and his kingship and the fact that he was a humble servant. John who puts the emphasis upon the deity of Christ and says, These things have I written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name, uh, acknowledges the kingship and the servanthood and the humanity of Christ, but he does not give a genealogy. He starts out, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in the 14th verse, the Word was made flesh, or literally, the Word made himself flesh, and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But Matthew presents him as king, and he presents himself as king in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, it was emphasized that he was a descendant of David, the great king. After the flight to Egypt and the return to Nazareth, where he was reared, uh, he disappears from public notice until he appears in the temple at the age of twelve, asking questions that baffle the wise men, and no doubt answering questions that baffle the wise men. And then he disappears again until he is formally introduced to humanity at the River Jordan. When John is baptizing, John out in the wilderness of Judea is preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then one day he saw Jesus coming and he pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, this is he of whom I said, He that cometh after me is preferred before me, 
for he was before me. He presents Jesus as the one whom he has come to introduce. And in connection with his preaching, he has indicated that he was sent to prepare the way for the king. And he's preaching, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. It was at hand in the person of the king. Then Jesus took up that cry, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He sent his disciples out to preach it. On one special occasion, he sent 70 disciples out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. It was at hand in the person of the king. He demonstrated his power to bring about kingdom conditions. In fact, all through the Old Testament, we have prophecy pointing to the golden age. In fact, one-fifth of the Old Testament is prophecy pointing to the millennium. And... Uh, Jesus fulfilled all the prophecy that was supposed to have been fulfilled until he comes to reign. But uh, he demonstrated his power to bring about those conditions. For instance, Isaiah said, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. He demonstrated his power over the material universe. He can cause the desert to blossom as the rose. Uh, he cursed a fig tree and the leaves withered and fell to the ground. He stilled the tempest. He turned water to wine. He raised the dead. And he could fulfill such prophecies as Isaiah gave in the 35th chapter when he said, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame man shall leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. He opened blind eyes and unstopped deaf ears and caused the lame to leap as an heart and the tongue of the dumb to sing. He has power to bring about those conditions. And he shall do so when he comes again. When his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, the mountain will cleave asunder and a river will flow there from Jerusalem toward the Hender Sea and toward the former sea. And all of the Arabian desert will blossom as the rose. And other deserts in the world, our Mohab desert and the great desert down in Libya, the Sahara, will blossom as the rose. And wildernesses will turn to gardens when Jesus comes to reign. He has the power to bring about those conditions. He demonstrated it while he was here. Then he gave those wonderful parables of the kingdom in the 13th chapter of Matthew. And they had to do with his kingship and with the king himself. And uh, he not only preached it, but then he fulfilled uh, another significant prophecy. One day he came riding into the city of Jerusalem on an ass's coat, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah, Behold, O Zion, thy king cometh riding upon an ass, the coat, the foal of an ass. And the people acknowledged that he was the son of David, they waved palm branches. They strode their clothing in his pathway, their, their cloaks, and they, they strode flowers in his pathway. They said, Hail to the Son of David. Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. And Jesus, with kingly authority, went directly to the temple and cleansed it. Three years earlier, he had cleansed it. On that occasion, he said, You have made my father's house a den of thieves. But on this occasion... With kingly authority, he walked into the temple and said, The zeal of my house has eaten me up. A few days later, he made the last lap of his earthly journey under the weight of a wooden cross, a 250-pound cross. 
I infer that he bore both sections of the cross because we're told that by the synoptic writers that he bore his cross all the way to Golgotha. And John tells us that Simon of Cyrene was forced to bear his cross. So the inference is that Simon bore the cross piece. Doubtless Jesus bore the upright all the way to Golgotha, or if it had been the other way around, both sections were very heavy. The average cross, the upright of the average Roman cross, weighed 170 pounds, and the cross piece 80 pounds. And Jesus, under that heavy weight, goes outside the city of Jerusalem. He leaves the pavement and goes up via Doloroso, as the Catholics have called the Way of Sorrows, and up to the gate of judgment. Then he turns to the north, we believe, and went out the northern gate to what is known as Gordon's Calvary. You see, Queen Helena went to Jerusalem in the fourth century in search of the cross of Christ. She found many precious artifacts, but she could not find the cross. There were thousands of crosses in the environs of Jerusalem. In fact, most of the trees in the environs of the city were cut down and made into crosses on which, which to crucify Jews in 70 A.D. But she could not find the cross of Jesus. And she was going back to Jerusalem. Queen Helena was the mother of Constantine, uh, who was nominally converted in the 4th century. And uh, she, no doubt, was a Christian. And she wanted to find that cross, but she was going back without it. But the bishop who accompanied her said, Let us tarry one more day. And I'll ask God to lead us to the cross. Why they had not prayed to that end before, we're not told. My source is the Catholic Encyclopedia. The next day he took her to a place where there were three crosses. And he said they were taking a man out to bury him, and I touched each of these crosses to him. When I touched the cross on either side of the center cross, uh, he remained cold and stiff in death. But when I touched the center cross to him, he stirred. So the queen said, this is Calvary, build the church here, and there stands the church of the Holy Sepulchre. But it's inside the old city of Jerusalem. To support this location, it has been taught that in the days of Christ, the wall was back where it was in the days of David, that it was not out to the north where it is today, for that is a crusader's wall. Indeed, it is a wall which has been re-erected by the crusaders. But the first time I saw it, I noted that huge Roman stones were at the base of it. And then the next time I was back there, they had excavated the so-called Damascus Gate, or under the Damascus Gate, the northern gate, and they had discovered a huge Roman gate, indicating the wall was out to the north in the days of Christ, in the days of Rome. And that northern wall runs over the edge of what used to be part of Mount Moriah, what is still Mount Moriah, but out to the north, uh, that little mountain out there was separated from Mount Moriah. Uh, the stones were digged out of there to build Solomon's temple. And uh, part of the mountain was separated from the main part of the mountain. And this created a dry moat, so the wall runs over the north of uh, the northern edge of what is known as Mount Moriah. And uh, out there to the north is that little mountain that's discovered by Gordon that looked like a skull, and he recalled that Calvary means skull. He went out there and took what appeared to be limestone from the surface, but 18 inches of it was human bone. So he 
reason this is Calvary. Now, that's a burying place, that mountain. And the Mohammedans bury above the ground, as do the Jews. But the thickness of the bone at that part, on the brow of the hill, might indicate that that was a place of execution. Now, he said, if this is Calvary, there's a garden hard by, so they excavated and discovered an old wine press. He said, if this is the mountain where Christ was crucified, this is the garden where he was buried, there will be some caves in that hillside. So they dug out the debris that had piled in there ever since 125 A.D. in the days of Hadrian, and they discovered three caves. He said, those are burying places. No doubt they'll contain human bodies, at least two of them. They opened the three caves, and sure enough, the two caves on either side of the central cave contained human bodies. They opened the center cave, and it was empty, and it was a rich man's cave. It had been smoothly chiseled into the hillside, and uh, there were three burying places there, all of them smoothly chiseled, except one of them had been elongated roughly, doubtless hurriedly, for doubtless Christ stood taller than Joseph of Arimathea. And uh, he had chemical tests made and discovered that no human body has ever decayed in that cave. Just outside the cave, there's a little wall that would appear to be a retaining wall to hold water from going into the cave. It's 18 inches, about 18 inches in height and about a foot away from the mouth of the cave. But it would not be for that purpose. It would be to hold a huge wheel-like stone about a foot thick roll over the mouth of the cave. Uh, so the women said, who will roll away the stone for us? Just above the door of the cave were two niches containing, they did not contain uh, gods or icons, but they were for that purpose apparently, for icons were down in the debris at the foot of the cave, and the niches would contain them. And then Gordon remembered that Hadrian in 125 A.D. boasted that he desecrated the burying place of Jesus by placing Roman icons there. So it may be and probably is there that the Savior was buried. And if so, he was crucified on the hill above. So out the gate of the city and out to the north, over a mile from the pavement under that weighty cross, and with that cross he bore the sin of the world. No wonder he faltered and had to have the assistance of old Simon. But on he struggles, on to Golgotha, and now the cross piece is placed upon the ground, and the upright is anchored in its socket. Jesus, stripped naked to his shame, is pressed upon the cross piece, his lacerated back, scourged with a cat of nine tails, is pressed on the rough wood, his hand is stretched out, a nail is placed into the wrist. Had it been placed into the palm, it would have torn through the flesh, the surgeons tell us, but the wrist is a part of the hand. When we read that his hands were pierced, they were pierced at the wrist. Do you remember that the servant of Abraham took to Rebekah two bracelets of ten shekels weight of gold for her hands, we read in the Bible. The hand is a, the wrist is a part of the hand. So, the hand was nailed secure, and the other hand stretched out, nailed secure. You see, the Romans were adept at the art of crucifixion. They drove the spike down between the artery and the leaders and the bone. And so the other hand is nailed secure, 
and the cross piece is raised with the use of a rope and a ladder and dropped into the socket at the top of the upright. And this was by design. The weight of his body pulled against two nails. This was to expand the chest cavity and make it difficult for him to breathe. So that after his feet were nailed, he'd have to pull up on three nails to fill his lungs with air, and this would hasten death. And after his feet, his hands were nailed, his feet were crossed and brought on the upright as high as they could raise them, and one spike served to hold them both, driven through into the wood, bruising the heel. The only death that bruises the heel is death by crucifixion. God said to the serpent in the garden, that is the garden of Eden, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's figurative language and conquering Satan. Uh, the Savior would suffer, but literally his heel is bruised. And now the weight of his body pulls against three nails, pulling his bones out of joint, fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 22, all of my bones are out of joint. They that look upon me wag their heads, they shoot out their lips, saying he saved others, himself he cannot save. And what does Jesus do? Does he curse them? No, he prays. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I was converted reading that verse. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. It was a prayer that came from his heart and reached the ear of God the Father and was heard and answered. Three hours he hangs in that scorching sun. And now the scene is enveloped in darkness as black as the ebony pall of the dead. And in the stygian darkness I hear a piercing cry. Eli, Eli, lama, ashtafani, or sabachthani, as it comes through the Aramaic. My God, my God, for what, lama, why hast thou forsaken me? I'll tell you why the Father forsook him. It was because your dirty, filthy sins won't. Every low-down, filthy, sneaking sin of your life was upon Jesus. All of my dirty sins were there. It's like a shaft they rose up there, but he had not become a sinner. He had become sin for us. Our sins were upon him. They threw their sable pall all over the world. The Father looked away. And for the first time from all eternity in some mysterious way, we will never understand until we understand the mystery of the Trinity. God the Son was banished from God the Father. And with infinite capacity to suffer, He suffered as much as you and I and every sinner who ever lived could suffer if we should spend all eternity in hell. Ere long he said, it's finished. But it was no weak cry, it was a loud cry. It was a cry of victory. When the satraps came back to Athens after putting down the Persians, they know the gates of Pericles with that word on their lips. To tell us die, finished! So Jesus musters up his last ounce of physical strength he grits his teeth and clenches his fists and pulls up on those three nails to fill his lungs with air 
and cries with a loud voice, Father, that's got it fixed. So poor, lost, hell-bound, hell-deserving humanity can come home to God and call Him Father and find a glad welcome. Into Thy hands I commend my spirit and this rejected King. The angels, darling, the Son of God, rejected, said it's finished. And he had ended his life without receiving his throne. The angel had said to Mary, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shall bring forth a son. And she did. And he shall be great, he was, and shall be called the son of the highest, he is, and was called that. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he's never had that throne. He went away without it. After his resurrection, after 40 days of post-resurrection ministry, from the Mount of Olives, with his hands extended in benediction, he went up an invisible escalator back to heaven. The disciples stood looking after him. They stood there a long time, looking up into the sky where they had seen him last, as he appeared as Shelley wrote to the skylark, like a tiny twinkling star in the broad daylight. Just looking up. And suddenly there appeared by them two angels who said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus said, I will come again. And he kept talking about his future kingdom. Now, if Jesus conquered death down here, and there's no doubt that he did, there are many infallible proofs that he arose from the dead. If he ascended up to heaven, he's still up there. He did not go up there and live three score and ten years and pass away on his father's throne in heaven. He didn't go up there and live a century and then die. He did not live 19 centuries and then expire. He's still there. And if he is there, there's no doubt that he'll come back here. He's the king with the authority and the right to the throne of David. And he'll have it. The father's determined to put him on the throne. He said, I have set my son, thou art my son this day have begotten thee, ask of me, and I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. I can think of nothing so incredible as the suggestion that he'll not come back. He's up there. So he's coming back here, out of the ivory palaces, into a world of woe. Only his great eternal love made my Savior go. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. 
to listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, preachthebible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit knvbc.com for Christian music you can trust.